What's up, Wildcatters? Have you heard about Collide yet? It's the newest community hub for the next generation of energy professionals. Collide.io is where you need to be if you're looking to connect, learn, and grow in this dynamic industry. And don't miss out on Collide GPT, our cutting edge AI chat designed specifically for the energy sector. It's like having an industry expert right at your fingertips. Join thousands of your peers who are already making the most of this incredible resource. Head over to Collide.io and sign up today. That's Collide.io. The future of energy is here. Don't get left behind. Myers. <laughs> Myers. So Ian, I told you, we got Ian Myers on the podcast. What the funk, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, Ian, the first time that you and I spoke, I was like, I got to tell you this. Anytime I see the last name Myers. So <laughs> you see behind me, people already know this about me. I'm a diehard Boston Red Sox fan. 2013. I went back for some of their opening round playoff games in October against Tampa Bay. Their right fielder, his last name was Myers. And he sort of made a play where he like hesitated to go and catch a fly ball and some miscommunication, fly ball drops. It bounces over, ground rule double. And I'm in like the right field bleachers at this point and just cascading down, right? It was just Myers, which then needed to happen like any time a ball was hit to him or he was at the plate. I felt bad. He was a rookie. He was like 22, but just like absolutely hilarious. So of course, anytime I see the name Myers, I think back to that wonderful moment. But I mean, he sounds like Keith and me playing senior league baseball back <laughs> in Pennsylvania, you know, <laughs> similar uh, outfielding skills by, uh, by the sounds of it. You guys were better engineers than ball players. We were better um, tacklers and hitters and, you know, brute force than like hand-eye coordination. I would yep. say that. Yep. Yeah, classic oil and gas guys. It seems like at least the first like dozen podcasts or so, the stories were all up the same. There was, there was Shad Frazier uh, and a few others where it was like, well, my dreams of being a professional football player died at some point, like my sophomore year of college when I got hurt. And that's when I found the oil field and it probably worked out for a lot of those guys. Hopefully for Shad, it worked out great. He's at Endeavor and they just sold the Diamondbacks. It's probably a good week for him. Yeah, no. I mean, it's funny you say that. I was getting recruited by some D2 schools for football. I went to this one Bucknell overnight visit. I don't know where this dude is. I don't remember his name. I need to track him down and like send him a bottle of wine or something. But I'm at this overnight at this like little party in Bucknell. We're drinking like High Life or something. Because they're trying to like impress me. And he's like, so what are you thinking, dude? And I'm like, well, I'm either going to come here and play football or I'm going to go to Penn State, study engineering and just be, you know, a normal student. And not, and not play football. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, he, I'll never forget. He looked at me. He's like, dude, don't come here. No, he's like, no one comes to our games. No one cares. No one goes to the NFL. And I was like. Thanks, man. I like I appreciate that. Like, and I went to Penn State and did engineering. So somewhere I need to go thank that guy um, with a bottle of whiskey or something. That's that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, for all we know, Bucknell's a pretty good school, if I recall. Like, that's uh, it, Pennsylvania, right? It is. It is. It's in Lewisburg. It is a good school, but um, I wouldn't trade my Penn State experience for for anything. Yeah you you went to the you went to the big state school and then you got your elite MBA later on but we'll we'll talk about that one quick story before I let you introduce yourself and talk a little bit more about pre Buck pre pre Penn State pre potential Buck now and then everything you've you've done since then so this is just funny and I, I have to I have to tell this story so 
you know, I'm on a bunch of different podcasts and people see my face. I'm always posting stuff on LinkedIn and I'm oftentimes wearing this hat, right? It's a funk futures hat. I just gave you and your brother, Keith, one. Yeah, and Houston. Good looking hat. It's a good Thanks. Looking hat. I know your haircut's too sharp to wear one today. I'm not offended. You got a clean cut, but I like to wear mine. I don't know. It's just sort of like a comfort thing. People even see me when I come on these calls and they're like, where's your hat? I'm like, oh, yeah. So it's become a thing. It shows you how much things have changed, right? Imagine wearing hats in like a big business meeting uh, even just five years ago. But anyway, so on the Funk Futures website, right, you can can send a message, right? So I get a message and I get tons of spam. Just just like people like find me a job with like a fake name, like xxy at hotmail.com. You know, and I'm just like this delete, delete, delete. I get this message. So I'm just like spam, spam, spam. And the message was, hello, I'd like to order one of those Funk Futures hats that you wear on a podcast that I just saw. My name is Jeremy Funk. (laughs) (laughs) And and I'm like, this is definitely not real, right? So I'm like, all right. So I respond back through the website. I go, prove it. And he... (laughs) He, he sends me, he's like, I just added you on LinkedIn. Sure enough, there's a guy named Jeremy Funk who's in Minnesota. And I'm like, seriously, you want a hat? Like, I don't, I usually just give them out to like business partners and clients and friends and stuff like you. He's like, dude, I'll pay you for, for a hat. I'm like, okay, I'm about to put in an order for some more hats. He's like, do you have a preference? Like, you know, <laughs> you, you, you wanted to snap back. I like the, the stretch fit fitteds. He's like, yeah, just the one that you're wearing on the podcast is great. So I'm like, all right, dude, send me a, send me your email or send me your address. Send me uh, 30 bucks, right? Basically just covered my cost of, I might've even lost money on it to be honest, but I'm like, well, you know what? I got a Jeremy Funk in Minnesota asking me for a hat. So anyways, I go to the post office. I take a picture of their receipt. I'm like, all right, I'm sending it. You send me the money. Like there's a lot of trust in play here. Fine. And I get a message a few days later, like, dude, the hat came in. I was like, I need a picture. Dude takes a picture. He looks like me. He's like a doppelganger, same kind of build. If I'm ever in Minnesota, which I probably never will be, I got to reach out to Jeremy Funk. But anyways, that that kind of made my week. And I was like, oh, I want to see where this goes. So I've been sharing this story a little bit. I love it, man. Just like the small, fun things like that, um, I, that sort of make your week here and there. I, I think of like, I think of the TV show Fargo of just some dude walking around Minnesota with the <laughs> futures hat on just owning it like that's his go-to hat every day i know it brings him joy every morning putting that hat dude on. he looks in the mirror he's like this is me i'm funk futures it's like right on jeremy funk like yes yes you are yes i am but um yes yeah, super funny super small world stuff and then to make it even worse so you ever google yourself google your name i think i have a couple times i tried to stay away from that it's like the most i actually googled your name last night um, there's a few other Ian Myers too, as you can imagine, but I think it's like the number one thing people actually Google is their own name. One of my buddies told me that a few years ago, I have no stats to back it up, but since my buddy told me a few years ago, I'm going to say that it's true, but I've, I've Googled myself or Googled the name, Jeremy Funk. It ain't pretty. There was a Jeremy Funk who <laughs> was in like Utah about 20 years ago, who, uh, was convicted of a double murder and then died in jail. Damn. I had somebody reach out to me on Facebook, like somebody from high school that I haven't seen in a long time. They're like, hey, are you in jail? I'm like, yeah, dude, I'm responding on Facebook Messenger from my jail cell. 
Like you see the pictures of me and my family that were posted yesterday. No, I'm not in jail. Other people happen to share the same name. So I kind of went down the rabbit hole of that and then Googling you, Googling Keith Myers. And it's hilarious, you know. Um, but nonetheless, enough about Jeremy Funks and the various different funks that exist all over the world. Ian Myers, who are you, man? Who am I? That's a great question. I think about that every day. Who am I? No, I'm a central PA boy at heart. Grew up right outside State College where Penn State is. What I call Pennsylvania, right? Amish country, middle of nowhere. Um, grew up there, you know, and um, worked like hell for a variety of reasons to get the hell out of there. Um, that's why me and my brother are so close. We were really tight knit and like we want to get out of here for a variety of reasons um you know and engineering was the ticket like we had done good in school and and we were poor kids who needed scholarships so we got them um went and did that and and it really started my oil field career i was telling someone this part i of the reason i got into the oil field was the scholarship money part of it too was it was right around the time there will be blood came out right with daniel yeah. day lewis Great I just movie. love that movie in college, like the epitome of, of him. Um, I've abandoned my boy. Yeah, 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 yeah. I once was going to get a tattoo of him drinking a milkshake on my leg, but I, I didn't. <laughs> but like, I, you know, I, I love that movie. And so I, I started my career at ExxonMobil, did all kinds of cool drilling completion stuff, deep water, <laughs> offshore California knew I wanted to be there three years and go do something more entrepreneurial. Um, so basically moved to Denver, what, 13 years ago, took a bigger role, smaller companies, ultimately culminated with me and some other guys starting Clear Creek Resource Partners, PE back, uh, DJ player. And that was like, and when you, I mean, you know, this, Jeremy, when you start your own thing, you call and hire people you trust. And my brother was like, the dude um so that's the first place we got working and and learn we love to work together and so it's kind of been from that point on like how can me and keith keep working together and build cool stuff so yeah which which led to your mba but we'll we'll jump into to that and mainline ventures and and our partnership as well which i'm super excited about so you know Central Pennsylvania. My wife is from York. I think I told you that. So I've spent a little bit of time in that part of the world. Definitely Pennsylvania, for sure. You see a lot of like, um, you know, Hillary for prison. Yeah, you know, like stakes in in the ground. Like you, you definitely feel like you're not just in like old Yankee Northeast. It's it's very very different. Um, did you grow up near where there was actually drilling going on? Because if my timing adds up here, when you were in high school, college, like the Appalachia uh, and the Marcellus Shale was actually starting to blow up a little bit. Yeah, it was really starting to blow up when I was in college, if I remember it right. So I didn't really have much, you know, of a of a look into it. Honestly, when I started school, I was chemical engineering, biomedical focused. I was going to go be like get my engineering degree and go be a doctor. Um, I always wonder like how that would have played out, but honestly, we weren't really around it. I mean, you know, the thing about Central PA is. Um, it's great people. I'm so glad I got raised there, but it's a lot of like drinking and working at the prison and everyone stays there. Like I remember my dad did like a 23 and me 
And basically, like Keith and me were the first version of the Myers, like to le- ever leave central Pennsylvania. So wow. it's like, um, yeah, so it's just like, I'm glad to grow up there. But, you know, for a variety of reasons, me and Keith wanted to get the heck out. And I just realized like, all right, school was going to have to be the ticket. Like if we were going to get out of there, school was going to be the ticket. So, so the importance of education more so than the industry that you got into was, was the most important. That's interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that about you, but it makes sense. And, and similar to central New Hampshire, where I'm from, I like to refer to it as a great place to be from. I've developed more of an appreciation for it as I've gotten older. My parents are still there at the same house that I grew up in and the area is beautiful and especially, well, the area is beautiful when it's not like this time of year. I finally encourage them to be like a little bit more of, you know, go to Florida for a couple months or North Carolina in the winter. I don't know why you're still there. It's gray. It's dark. It's cold. There's definitely a lot of drinking, um, you know, and then there's like these occasional small universities, which is why I ended up there. But like you, like I knew I was going to get out and I agree that that education was part of the ticket because there weren't like a lot of the, like, say you grew up in Midland, right? Like look at Colin at, at digital log counters. Like he had the opportunity to go into the oil field. There were no jobs like that where I was that would have paid you that way. I guess if you went a couple hours away and you wanted to go out on like lobster boats or something, but I didn't want to like drive a snowplow, you know, like those were the options. There wasn't a lot. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean it, for us, it was like you work at the prison, maybe you get a Penn state job, you go into the military which is all fine and great and great jobs. Um, it just was, you know, I don't know. We just wanted, we just wanted to get the heck out. Of it. I mean, and you know, our like home life was not great growing. I, I tell people this a lot. Like, I feel like up to 18, you get in all your trauma, all your BS, all the things. Then in your twenties is like setting the world on fire because of it. Right. Yeah. It's like you're fueled by it. You're angry. You're like, do it. And then you're like your thirties. It's like, all right, I'm packing it. It's a little more nuanced. I have a little more appreciation. I have a little more empathy. Like, like you said, it, now you can reflect back and be like, it's a great place to be from. Like that, that's kind of, I mean, that's kind of how it was. And so I think, um, I'm glad to grow up there, but I'm never going to move back to, to PA. Yeah. I bet if you asked me in my twenties about New Hampshire, it was fucking boring. Fucking suck. Right. <laughs> Econ really cold words, no jobs, uh, but obviously different different kind of appreciation for now. And you also sort of just start to learn, like, I don't know, it's very easy to compare yourself to what others have. Maybe they live in a place that has better weather, more wealth, or more girls, or prettier girls, or whatever it is, whatever you're into. Um, but ultimately, everybody's experience in high school is like kind of the same. You like you develop like, in my case, like maybe like three or four close friends. And those are the people that you still stay friends with later on. And everything else is just kind of noise. Yep. No, hundred percent. I agree with that. So you said it was either work at state Penn or Penn state. If I got Yeah. That. Yeah. It's like the biggie lyric a hundred percent. Yeah. So and, uh, there's no greater claim to fame than that line to any, any Penn Stater when you're at Penn State, like that in state college in general, like that is what we, everyone wants on their tombstone is that biggie quote. Cause he talks about uh, Penn State. Nice. Well, the Nittany negotiators is what you guys are now, but we, we're, we're not going to jump ahead that far yet. So uh, we didn't meet when you were at Emerald. We didn't meet when you were at CCRP, but you were a pretty young CEO, uh, COO, I should say, um, at CCRP, like 
what was that like? You were still in your twenties and then you get tabbed to, to run operations for a DJ basin oil and gas company. Like, did you feel ready? Were you nervous about that? Was it crazy? Like, tell, tell me a little bit about that experience. Most COOs that come on here are like in their fifties, you know? Yeah, no, no, I wasn't ready. Um, <laughs> I got really fortunate. There was a guy, our CEO, Keith Engler at Clear Creek. He was a special advisor at Emerald. And I kind of came in in this wave of people that were trying to like write that ship. And Keith was tasked with a lot of things. So he'd come up with these ideas and then I would go execute them. And so we built this rapport. And he had like a great fondness for people who could do the high end like executive stuff, but also like roll up the sleeves and do the work. Totally. And he called me. He's like, hey, I want to go start something. I want you to run their operations. And I'm like, okay, sure. Um, would love to. Um, <laughs> and just got lucky. And man, I would be lying to you if I I felt like I was was ready to do it. Um, but in hindsight, um, like I'll give you an example, right? So we get our acreage position. We're about to go do our first well. We're frack our first well. Keith, Keith is on my team. So we're, it's basically me and Keith planning the whole, the whole thing, right? The challenge when you're that small is getting good service personnel to come to location. It's getting sure. good consultants. Like I'm not running a full year program where I can get people. So me and Keith are literally like planning everything. We have consultants, but we're going to spend, we spent every day on every well that we drill at Clear Creek. Um, so I'm driving out to the first well and I am like sick to my stomach. Like, I, what am I doing? I shouldn't be like, there's a hundred, going to be a hundred people out here tomorrow. I don't know what the heck um, I'm doing. I pull over on the side of location. I literally throw up because I'm so <laughs> I get the location. It's 11 o'clock at night. This is a true story. Um, I check in with the consultants. It's the first time I'm meeting them. And at the time, like they were putting the facility in and they were doing some trench work and we had it X'd off. Well, this service provider, I won't say the service company's name. I'll, I'll take it to my grave comes driving up, okay, and like runs past the area that was like blocked off, like it's blocked off with tape, and drives into the trench. Oh my God. Gets out, tries to go get into the, uh, to the um, crane. I'm like, what is going on? Come out, this guy was wasted beyond yeah. me. And he was the HSE director for this company. I was, I'm like, so I'm like, this is my first well ever, right? I come from Exxon where like everything is buttoned up to a T yeah. and we got some guy driving on location, like crashing into it. Like it was insane. Um, so that's how it started. I did not feel ready, but I think what I learned most through that is I leaned a lot on like my oil and gas network. Like me and Keith were always asking questions to other people. Like, what are you guys doing? We never got too like rooted in what we thought. And so we yeah. just kind of leveraged that. And then um, I think it was just like being out there. Like we, we really were out in the front. I think that's the hot, like the last thing I'll say is I think when you're young in leadership, you have to lead from the front. Like you have to be rolling up your sleeves and getting out there with people. You don't have 30 years experience for people to just say, Hey, we trust you. You know what you're doing. Yeah. You have to be like, you know, just grinding it out out there. And, you know, that's what we did. And I think that gave me a lot of confidence to do a lot of things I've done since Clear Creek. 
Yeah. But no, I wasn't ready. I was not ready. I mean, that, I, I like that that answer. And I, and I think the contrast of uh, CCRP versus ExxonMobil, obviously, is stark, right? Because ExxonMobil, like you said, they've got a playbook and everything's going to happen a certain way. And there's going to be these people on site and they're using all the top tier blue chip partners, right? Yep. And the most expensive products. Yep. And and it's been methodically planned out well in advance to meet corporate guidance and guidelines. And then you're literally in the Wild West, right? As a young COO. And that's that, that story to me is like a great visual. I can totally picture it. So so CCRP, right? You and your brother have a chance to work together. You're effectively running drilling and operations. You guys drill some good wells, some probably not good wells. Yeah. But nonetheless, you've got great experience from that. That took you, I think, into like around COVID times where I believe there was some sort of exit, you guys ended up selling the company and then you went to get your MBA as did your brother. So tell me a little bit about that, like the exit of an oil and gas company and then deciding you wanted to pursue something else and going back to school. Yeah. I don't know that I've ever really like told exactly the story that got me to go get my MBA, but I would say when I moved here to Denver, I was 26 and I was very much going to like spend a year here and go get my MBA full time. I had a couple of buddies at Exxon. One went to Harvard. They kind of went all over. One went to MIT. Like that was the plan. Well, dummies, you know, life, dummies, life, just dummies. Yeah, yeah, dummies, right? Life hits you. I end up having kids very early. It, you know, it was not the planned situation. Um, and so just career took off and started running that route. COVID happened. I don't know if you ever know, Jeremy, but I have hearing aids, right? Like, so COVID happens, people start wearing masks. I can't hear anything. Oh my um, God. And I go to the audiologist. I'm like, what is going on? Well, I have this, you know, disease called autosclerosis. The bones calcify. It's so slow over time. That's not like you wake up. I've become a lip reader, blah, 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 blah. And it was kind of like my first like real moment of like, Oh, you're not this invincible, you know, right. 20 year old kid anymore. Um, and there were all these things that kind of percolated, like, not that I was going to die over it, but it was like, hey, there's still things that you want to accomplish on the list. And I think going and getting my MBA was one of them. And hmm. so that in conjunction with, you know, COVID happened, I kind of saw the consolidation coming and, and the DJ in Denver. I want to stay in Denver. So I wanted to broaden out too. Um, yeah, so kind of all those things went into, um, into going back and getting my MBA. And you're right, like me and my brother, we're not just business partners, we're like best friends. And we're very, we go on on these packs of things. And so we both had always said, you know, let's go get our MBAs. And yeah. so I went and did mine at Kellogg, he went and did his at Berkeley. Um, but that's kind of like what got me got me going doing that. Yeah, I, I I didn't know all of that, and I appreciate the insight. Um, fascinating, and and you know, I guess why Kellogg was it like something specific about the Northwestern MBA program? Was it just this is a top tier school that I'm interested in? Was it that I think your in your case it was located in Miami? Like like why Kellogg and not Denver or somewhere else? Yeah, I'll be honest that it was uh, is a brand thing, like all these schools are really expensive. And so in my mind, and I don't know that this is like in hindsight is a right or wrong, but it was, Hey, if I'm going to spend all this money, I'm going to go do it at a 
top five school and get the network. I, I tell yeah. everyone this. Do I think I learned anything at Kellogg that I wouldn't have learned at DU or somewhere else? Probably not. Maybe a little bit, right? Like uh, Kellogg is the world's most pronounced marketing MBA school. So they're really good at marketing oh. and that type of thing. So maybe there's some things I learned there that are different, but it was really just, you know, what could I do and still be working and being a good dad and that type of thing? And what would be a big school? And Keith and me kind of did it strategically saying like, I'll go to one, huh. you know, you go to another, that way we can kind of overlap the networks. Um, and so I, I think it's worked out. It's worked out good. I mean, I appreciate the candor and I wish more people would say that. I mean, the reason I went to Brandeis is because it was the best school I got into. I didn't like have a plan at 18 years old. Um, you at least had a plan at whatever, 30 years old when you decided to do this. And that plan was met by going to the best MBA program you possibly could. So kudos to you on that. And Heath went to, to Haas uh, Berkeley, which is also great. So he was going West. You're flying East, right? You guys are building these awesome networks. Were there any oil and gas people in the Kellogg program? I had one who was a CFO for um, uh, like a family um, office-backed company in Dallas, but there really okay. wasn't. Um, <clears throat> no, there really wasn't, which, you know, I, I think it was, honestly, it was part of appeal for me. I, I'm a big like connect the dots person, meaning like, I think there's a lot you can learn by looking outside of just the industry you're in and like pattern match and say yeah. this. And so, um, yeah, there really wasn't, I, you know, I, I know some, like, I had some buddies who were in oil and gas that kind of went through cohorts after me. Um, but that were in oil and gas, but, you know, I think they're like, they tried to be particular, they're like this guy from here and this kind of industry will take this person from here. They try to like be strategic and like crafting these cohorts. And so yeah. I think I got like the oil and gas, you know, guys, Check that box, right? Oh, cool. We've got an executive from the oil and gas industry. He's in Denver. Awesome. Uh, and, and you met a lot of people that, you know, then moved on to take like big jobs and you decided to go into the field of negotiation. Like that's sort of where you decided to lean into first. And talk to me a little bit about that. Like I've already learned a lot in our brief time, you know, working together and partnering between mainline ventures and funk futures. But, but talk about some of what you kind of love and appreciate in terms of the art and, or the science behind negotiation, your experiences there. Yeah. So, you know, I think my interest started at a really early age in that, like my parents and my grandparents tell the story of like me being eight years old, being like, I'm a businessman. Um, nice. But I was very curious always psychology and like how people like I, my, my mom will tell you I was reading like the seven healthy habits as like a seventh grader like I was just <laughs> weird like into like that type of psychology stuff and so a couple of that with I come in the energy industry and what I see is like and I think this is true um it is especially at Clear Creek it's like there are like two or three deals as an EMP that you make that really like lock in what you're going to like potentially do. It's like, what do you buy your acreage for? Um, What kind of midstream agreement can you strike? You know, what kind of deals can you strike on your AFE? And then what do you sell for? So like I had seen, and I've done a lot of negotiation on procurement and like land buys and acquisitions. And so I've just was like, 
man, this skill kind of sets the stage for everything. It doesn't matter how good of a well I drill if we don't buy the acreage for the right price and structure the right deal. Sure. And so we were halfway through. Clear Creek was done. I didn't know like what industry. I flirted with tech for a little while. And I'm like, hey, I have this unique opportunity. Let me go rep this skill across a bunch of different industries and kind of scratch that itch. And so that's really what, um, what kind of got me going in that direction. And yeah, and and now I thought it was really interesting. You know, Justin uh, Gauthier, Wicked Energy, connected us. I, I pride myself on being a connector. Um, I think you're a connector. He's definitely a connector, one of the best I think in the space. And he just he and I did a podcast, and we're just kind of rapping afterwards. And he's like, I don't know how this is going to work or even what will come with it, but like, you got to meet these guys. <laughs> you got to meet these guys. Ian's in Denver. Keith is down here. He's like, these are, these are some of my guys from when I was in school in, in Denver that I, I really like. I don't know where this is going to go, but you should meet with them. And I remember you telling me this must have been like November, right? Something like October, November. We met in uh, r- right near where you was, used to work down in Cherry Creek. Yes. And um, at North Italia, by the way, which is freaking outstanding. My favorite, my favorite lunch spot in the whole city, honestly. I mean, it's way up there. So we, we meet up and we start talking and, and you talked about, you were talking a lot about negotiation. You wanted to do like negotiation consulting and helping companies with go to market. And I hadn't even really heard this, right? I'm like, what do you mean by negotiation? You're like, well, think about it from an operator's perspective, right? They typically think of like one lever to pull, which is just like price, right? But then how do you respond to that? If you are the vendor that's trying to sell something because there should always be some level of give and take. And, and it's typically something that's learned. It's not totally innate in people. And, and there are some people in business that have to win every negotiation. And yes. those are generally people that at some point I'm like, I can't, I can't work with you. Like there has to be some, I need to win some too. I'm not saying I need to win every one, but there has to be some give and take in this. Right. And, and I thought it was pretty, pretty fascinating the way that you in particular looked at negotiation. Then you launch Mainline. You showed me your site. I'm like, okay, this is not just negotiation. You got so much going on here. A lot of this uh, go-to-market strategy, even a little bit of marketing, kind of brand creation. I think that it's it's cool and and naturally a really good complement as we've figured out to Funk Futures, which focuses a little yeah. bit more on the sales execution and lead generation, business development stuff. But truth be told, companies work with us they kind of already feel like they have their value prop and their personas and their product market fit and their plan figured out. Honestly, most of them don't, right? Which is where you guys come in and effectively can work with these companies to say like, truly, like, what is your pricing? What is your pricing? What should it look like? Who should you be selling to? And how do you sell to each of these various different personas? And what should your brand look like and sound like? And, and do these kind of, you know, short and sometimes longer term engagements. And then you hand them to me and my team. And we've got like a playbook that we can execute on versus us, like haphazardly taking 30 minutes to effectively put together a like half-baked playbook and just go to market with it and hope that it hits, right? So to me, yeah. it's it's very logical. And, and I also think it can go in the other direction too, where we start working with a client and realize, oh, actually they could leverage some of what mainline is doing. So, so talk to me a little bit about some of your objectives um, in terms of mainline and, you know, what your focus on industries and at what stage should a company engage you guys? 
um, and all those sorts of things that are making you guys kind of a hot emerging entity right now? Yeah, it's a great um, lead in. You know, I, I, to me, I think you ask 100 people what negotiations means, you're going to get 100 different answers. It's, a, sure. it's, like a, it's like a mystical thing that's kind of up here. In my mind, what we do through, and there are science around it, in behavioral science that you know, kind of underpin, that's why you can take them to different industries and use them. It's all about connecting your strategy and your differentiation, right? Everyone has a strategy, every company, or they wouldn't, they wouldn't be around. They have differentiation. It's yep. connecting that through the business. It's connecting it through sales. It's connecting it. We work a lot with procurement groups. It's connecting it through procurement groups. It's sure. connecting it through M&A. And so we can work with any different you know, size company. And, and what I say to, to folks is, you know, let's look at the sales side. Everyone's under pressure to hit their revenue targets right now, right? right? What, you know, Jeremy, you've been in sales. What, you're off track. What are the common remedies folks folks do to, to, to kind of get back on track? Well, they might hire, they might do a sales summit. Maybe they bring in a new VP. Right. Maybe they overhaul a new CRM because they think it's going to, you know, ours is a very succinct playbook that is minimally invasive. What I mean is we can come meet with you, take it through one deal and you could take it. You don't have to change people. You don't have to change CRMs and can systematically give you get you better deals. We could do it on the procurement side too. And so, you know, it's really anyone looking to really optimize their deal. And it, it and you're right, it's it's even it's best done when we can connect it to um to a great fractional sales group that can go, you know, maximize it on 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 the ground. So that's why I say, you know, I, I think go to market, the nice thing about go to market like if you're an existing company, you already have your go-to-market. We're kind of weeding through where you're at and saying, "Let me connect your most important strategy to your commercial offering." Go to market that the the slate is blank, and so we can work with you and say, "All right, here's exactly how we're going to position your firm. Here's yeah. how we're going to carry it through the offer." I mean, you know, like a lot of what we do is move you from talking about what makes your company different. To putting it on paper so you get recognized value for it, and um, I mean, yeah, that's a long-winded answer, but that's really what we're what we're trying to do. I mean, I teed you off with a long-winded comment and just totally <laughs> stole your thunder, so don't don't worry about that. I also think, like, let, let's use tech as an example. It doesn't have to be oil and gas tech, energy tech, just tech as a whole. Like, think about who generally starts tech companies. Well, it's technical resources. For the yep. most part, these are not strong negotiators and they're not good at go-to-market. So they start bringing in other resources there. And I think there's a real opportunity for you guys. I always see, okay, well, these are technical founders, technical people that built a good product. We'll go sell it. There's like a big gap in between there that I think you guys fill that yes. makes just a ton of sense. And and I also see the the negotiation consulting or the go-to-market strategy that you guys execute typically in a pretty short period of time being crucial at any price point, right? So, I mean, and if I look at my portfolio of companies, I was just talking to one of my clients about this today. One of them wants us to do outbound for a product that's $2,000 a year. And they want us to hit thousands of different people and go sell this one little niche product. And it's going to be a quick yes, or it's going to be a quick no. On the other hand, we have some large scale enterprise solutions that we offer that 
the minimum starting price for some of them is 250, 300K and could end up being a total contract value in the tens of millions, right? But I think what you guys are doing, the same principles generally apply with how are you positioning this within an organization? Then how are you able to come up with a way to structure a deal that an executive is able to sign off on? Right. So talk to me a little bit about some of that, like small price point, high price point. Do you guys generally take like the same kind of approach if it's a repeatable tactical sale versus a large scale enterprise strategic sale? Like are the underpinnings the same or do you feel like it's sort of a case by case basis? The underpinnings are the same. We have a very straightforward playbook. And I'll just like simply say it's about finding your leverage. It's about analyzing your leverage. It's about you know, then crafting the deal, deploying the deal and closing the deal. Like those are the five things. And we have various tools and processes that kind of carry that through. What's going to be different, it's just the amount of scale. So if there's smaller price point, we're building probably more, you know, maybe three or four different kind of execution toolkits. So what I mean by that's like a pitch deck and offer like talk track, like Jeremy, here's what you're going to go say. And we're probably building that off of three or four broader personas of yeah. target companies and the kind of mass doing that. If, it, if it's a very big enterprise deal, we're doing that very, very, very custom. I mean, we're, we're even like analyzing what we can for each person in the organization you're going to talk to. What research can we find about them? Like, here's how we're going to articulate it. Um, but the playbook is the same. It's just like, how are you going? You have to scale with the lower price. And to do that, you got to build your top three personas, craft it around that, yep. and then just just execute it. Do, do you guys get involved in the actual negotiation of deals themselves? Like, will a company say, hey, we've got this deal in the pipeline. We've had this in the pipeline for a while. Can you like help us extract maximum value out of this thing? Like you do it, you're better than me at this. Does that happen? Is that a thing? It it happens. We've sat at the table with folks. I would say folks don't really like that because yeah. they go to explain like who who is this person coming in, and then folks might like research and find out, you know. And it kind of what what typically we'll do is like say Funk Futures crushing it. We're helping you sell the company. We'll like work with you. Here's the pitch, Jeremy. Here's the talk track. You meal get on and practice. I'll even like give you objections. Um, but we will sit at the table. And sometimes honestly, we'll be like in the background listening in, taking notes of like, you know, what was said, or somebody will do an auditor transcript and send it to us and we'll listen. Um yeah. well, it kind of varies. I mean, and, and I, it, it, I do really believe this. Like I tell anyone, because I do a lot of personal negotiation stuff, right? Folks who are mm. gonna go try to get more salary or sell their company or something like that. It, it's an uncomfortable feeling to hear no. And one of mm. our things, me and Keith always say, is like, we want to hear no. Like, if I give you a price and a package and you say yes on the first time, you I'm left like, something on the table. Yeah. I left something on the table. It's uncomfortable, especially when it's yourself hearing that. Right. And so I tell people, like, go rep it. Like, Ask for a discount on the sweater at Nordstrom's when you go buy it. Like, just get used to like asking because that's going to prep you best when you're at the table. And we'll get people as prepped as we can, but it's almost like a a muscle you have to rep, you know? Yeah, yeah, I I like that, um, and it makes it makes plenty of sense to me because people 
are uncomfortable in negotiations. I think it's just human nature. It's it's conflict. And for the most part, humans like to avoid conflict. What want to talk a little bit more about what it's like working with your brother. So I, I've seen you guys kind of ham and egg. You you seem very different. You guys look different. You sort of have different skill sets with, with some similar background. But the, what's it like, like on a day-to-day basis working with your brother? Because I feel like if I was working with my siblings, they would just start to hate me every single day. But but what's it like? Like, how do your personalities balance each other? What are some of like the the strengths and I guess weaknesses that some of you guys complement each other with? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, people always ask that. You know, it's always funny because we're always like together. And I'm like, what do you want me to say? I hate working with my brother when I'm right next to him. Um, <laughs> no, but I mean, it's honestly, we think about things from a business perspective very similarly. So what is nice about that is we can like hand tasks off and kind of run with things pretty well. We also can like have really hard conversations that I think people shy away from at other places. Um Keith is definitely like more laid back. Like all my, we have a lot of similar friends. Keith would be your preferred roommate. He's like the more laid back, go with the flow. Very like methodical. I think he's very well-spoken. He's a great debater, Um, but just a little bit more laid back. Um, You know, and and we we have a great dynamic. I I think the key thing is, is we're like very clear because he's my best friend too, right? And there's times where like, I think we have to be candid with one another. Like, hey, I need best friend Keith right now. I don't need, I right. don't need business Keith. And and he could do the same thing. Or, you know, inevitably like, hey, I'm the, I'm the pessimist today. I need you to be the optimist or we're not going to get through, through the day. And so I think we just like hand that off. And it, it's interesting because our relationship's really grown. Like I was very much the, father-like figure for Keith um, really until probably 32. And then, you know, I had some things in my life that kind of went sideways, right? Like divorce and things like that. And it it like really brought us closer because for once, like I was turning to him for help and guidance. And like, I think what is beautiful about that is it's like evened out this relationship where we feel like really, I, I don't know, that we can count on one another and lean on each other more. And I think that's been really important as we get going on, on mainline, you know? Yeah, man. I mean, that's, that's awesome. And I appreciate you sharing some of that personal detail. I, I told Keith, like we were out to lunch. I don't know how old you guys were at the time, right? I know how old you are now. And Keith's like, how old are you? And I'm like, I'm 44. And he's like, I'm 32. I'm like, you're 32? Dude, when I was your age, like I didn't have a clue. And you're in here like negotiating, teaching people how to negotiate, coming in, proposing some of these high dollars. And, you know, you've got your MBA, you've got a family. I'm like, dude, you're you're with it, man. Like, uh, good on you. So I think that, you know, it probably helped him coming after you. You probably made some mistakes that he could then avoid himself, right? And then uh, in some ways, like be a good compliment to, to what you've been able to bring to the table, but he, he's a good dude. And I'm sure at some point we'll have him on the podcast too. He's in Houston. You're in Denver. Like how did that all end up? He was in Denver for a while, of course, with CCRP, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. It's funny you bring this up today because I got him like this close to moving back to Denver. Um, I got him really, cause they're about to have their third baby. And so I'm like, um, I'm him to get back here. And our parents are here now. Um, at the time, he had taken a new opportunity as like director of sales for Evolution, the EFRAC company. Um, 
his wife is from South Texas and, and I think they thought, you know, they moved down there and be closer to them. And there was some stuff going on with our parents at the time. And he just, I think he just wanted a fresh, you know, start. I would, and, um, so he, like they decided to move back to Houston, but, um, but I'm like this close to getting him back to that, which I think would be great. Cause our, he's got kids the same age as my kids. They're like thick as thieves. And you know, like from a business standpoint, I'd love to have an office space that we're working, we're working in. Yeah. At because least- then I, then I could crash it. Which would yeah. Be great. No, and the three of us could like, you know, we, we have to find a location that, that is suitable for us, but, um, yeah, no, I, I would love it. You know, I'm always happy yeah. to get back here bad. You know, so you, you get, I appreciate that, that insight. So, and I hope he comes back too, because he's just a cool guy and we can hang out like outside of work too. But, but, you know, I want to talk a little bit about your, your career decision post um, MBA. Like I'm sure coming out of Kellogg MBA, you get people that are going like big time C-level roles at various different types of companies, which surely were available to you, but you've decided you really want to kind of launch your own thing and go off on your own. Like wh- why? You know what I mean? Like, I just have to ask, like people ask me, they're like, why'd you start your own company? And, and my answer, although it's changed over time was, um, I just didn't want to have one job, you know, like I wanted every single day to be different. Um, and also to make the most of a, of a Rolodex that I'd built, um, over time. But, but why did you, I didn't go to Kellogg either though, but why did you decide not to take some high paying job in some big city and instead start this firm with your brother? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, in fact, I did. I'm still an advisor and co-founder of a company, a company called Mirador that I started with an MBA classmate of mine who is like nice. super successful. Built basically what's the Chipotle of India and sold it. Like super wow. interesting dude. Um, and that was a goal. Like I was going to go launch that. We had already raised our seed round um, and just things like in my life, you know. But divorce was finalizing. It wasn't the right, it was not the right time for that. I needed to kind of get my, I just graduated. I need to get my feet under me. Um, and so, you know, like, I think you go through something like that. And I'm like, what do I want like life to be like? Um, and I step back and I'm like, man, I love working with Keith. Like Keith worked with me at the mm. consulting firm. We worked Clear Creek. I love building. Like I love, and I wonder if you can appreciate this, like, as crazy as this time is like starting a company, I love like kind of building and creating like it, yeah. it's creative from my end. And then, you know, I think as I've gotten older, like things have changed in priorities. Like I want to have flexibility to work at the house. I, I want to stay in Denver. I want to be able to pick the kids up when I have them. Yeah, I want to work with people I want to work with. Um, and so I just think like it naturally kind of realized like, once the mirror door thing just wasn't going to work out for timing. And then, you know, this opportunity with Keith and I came up, it was like, let's go do it. Like, and, and frankly, like now's the time um, to go, yeah. to go try it. And so I don't know. I think I've just realized like, I'm not going to be a corporate corporate guy. I like to have my hands in a lot of things. And um, yeah, so that's kind of, that was kind of the decision-making. I love it. I love it. And e- easier said than done, but we talked about this over a lunch at garden grace, where it was literally only like two of us there in the whole restaurant on a Monday or whatever it was. And we sat down, but, um, you, you echoed something that, that I said early on in my business. And now, you know, I'm three plus years into the business. I still say the same thing. Like, what's the worst thing 
that could happen. Well, you just go and get a job. Well, that's not any different than how things had been to this point. So I can, if that's failure, I can accept that as failure. And I think that mindset, of course, it's easier said than done. But if the worst thing that could happen is my business doesn't work and it fails and I have to go get a job, I can live with that being the outcome. And yep. I know that that's how you're thinking about things too. Like it's not going to fail, but you know what? Like if it does, you'd be all right getting a job. Of course, you don't want to do it, but you would. You'd put food on the on the table for your family and you'd still find balance, right? Yeah, for sure. No, 100%. I agree with that. So where can people find more about you? You've been putting some pretty cool posts out on LinkedIn lately with a lot of detail, even like... Um, I'd say tactical level insights, negotiation related. Um, talk about like, you know, where can people find your website? Where can they find you on social and, and all that good stuff? Yeah, I mean, the best place, um, and you're right, my focus right now from a content perspective is really building out LinkedIn, LinkedIn content. So I would say that's the, the first place I would look to. We're about to start a newsletter um, through the website, mainline-ventures.com another great place. Um, but those are probably the two places I would go, um, go to find, to find and connect. And, and, um, I'm definitely going to be, have a lot of good content coming down the pipeline to, to put on LinkedIn. So I, I would definitely be checking there. Yeah. You, you are putting out good stuff. And, and I, I think, you know, you've even kicked around the idea of possibly a podcast. I've been pretty fortunate in that I started it during COVID, like at a point yeah. when, I didn't have any of that outreach and then just started to really like it. Obviously it was terrible for me to lose Tim as a, as a partner and as a friend, um, a little bit like, you know, losing a brother that you met when you were 30 something years old. But, um, I had to step back and take a break once I lost him and realized that I actually missed doing this, that this human authentic connection, of course, it's good for business. You build credibility as a thought leader in certain areas, but most importantly, you get to have real, genuine conversations with people like you um, that offer services that may be complimentary to my business, that you could do business for me, that I could buy something from you, whatever it is, there, there's a lot that, that could be done. So I really appreciate you coming on today, Ian. Um, you're a good one. I think we've got a really logical partnership where the handoffs are super natural. So if you want to learn more about Mainline Ventures, you can always hit me up. I'll put you in touch with Ian or his brother. And then, of course, you guys know about Funk Futures. So appreciate you coming on today, my brother. Yeah, man. It's been great. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me.